podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello there, regular listener to Red Inca. Some of you may not be aware, but I have a new podcast which is quite different to this one, called Double Century, and it's me in a room talking about the history of cricket, modern and ye olden days. Chances are, if you like this podcast, you'll like me talking about that kind of cricket as well. You can find it on all your podcast apps out there. Double Century, the oldest new podcast in town. There is a reason this podcast is called Ren Inca. It's not just a cricket reference, although obviously that too. This is a podcast about cricket stories and the people who write them. Most of those people were born into the game. They know it to their bones. This guy, not so much. My name is Wright Thompson. I'm a senior writer for ESPN. Let's not piss about here. Wright Thompson is a huge deal. And it was a thing when he started writing about cricket. A sport he knew nothing about, which he's been very honest in admitting, but one he's grown to love. Here we talk about Sachin, Virat, Chris, and the time Wright called up random US non-cricket fans to tell them why Mahela and Kumar were special. Let's start with the obvious thing. You're not a cricket person, right? You come from way outside of anything like that. How do you convince your editors that you're going to go to India for a bunch of weeks and just work it out as you're there? Uh, Well, this might blow your mind, but it was a command performance. (laughs) Like, it was not me asking them. It was them telling me. Wow. And uh, I wanted to go write about this kid who was a caddy at a golf club in Mumbai who was trying to make it as a professional golfer. And... The deal was, they said, you can do that if while you're there, you do this. And so it's funny, I don't remember the caddy story, but I really remember this one because I quickly got way down the rabbit hole. Like it's, it was a really intoxicating thing. I'd never been to India before. I don't know. I got way hooked on it. You'd never been to India before and you'd never done cricket, which was the one that sort of grabbed you quicker. It seems like India and Bangladesh grabbed you before cricket did. It was interesting. There, I don't know if you were with us that first night in Bangladesh. I wasn't on that tour. I didn't meet you until Lords or World T20. So I wasn't there at all. So it was bonkers leaving that stadium that night in Dhaka. <laughs> I mean, it was really crazy. And you couldn't get a car. Hold on a sec. Do you need some? <laughs> okay. Oh, I'm going to be here for. Okay. Yeah, I know. Uh, no, but it was like, it was totally bonkers. There were thousands and thousands and thousands of people. We called the hotel and we're like, can you send a car? And they just laughed at us. <laughs> you know, we were walking out, like, it was like street performers swallowing fire and people blowing vuvuzelas. It was just chaos. And I just remember thinking, I, I've been to a lot of sporting events and I've never seen anything like this. And the next day I get on the airplane and flying out of Dhaka, flying back into India And on my plane, and I didn't know who either of these people were, but on my plane sitting around me was Sunil Gavaskar and Dhoni. The plane was going batshit crazy. They landed with people standing up in the aisles in first class asking for autographs and photos from Gavaskar and Dhoni. And the stewardesses and the pilots finally just gave up. I've never been on a plane before that just landed with people standing up. And we walked through customs and like, 
Tony doesn't even have to get his passport out. Do you, I mean, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, and I, I'll never forget, like, there was, like, duty-free, and he walked over and was looking at the cologne. The owner of the duty-free shop saw it was Doni and saw the cologne he was looking at and, like, ripped open the package and sprayed, like, a cloud of it in the air. And Doni leaned in and inhaled deeply, like, and then walked away. And I was like, man, I have been around every famous athlete in the world and every starstruck weird fan, and I have never seen anything like any of this. And after that, I was totally hooked. Was that India, though, or is that cricket? Because I remember in your piece, you talk about the fact you had cricket for dummies. And if you read the piece back, which everyone will, obviously, after this podcast, you're not entirely sold on cricket after the first couple of games. You don't get it. I mean, it's a complicated game to be dropped into. So it feels like you're sort of coming to grips with India and you look at this boring one-day game going, I don't understand this. It was as simple as I didn't understand what was happening in front of me. I was sitting for all these matches in the ESPN seat. So it was Sambit near me usually or Andy Zaltzman was there. And so I kept just being like, now what? <laughs> and I didn't really get it until I sat next to Andy during the England-India tie that was in Bangalore. And it was the most intense thing I'd ever been to in my life. And, like, it was the first time I was like, oh, okay. I understood enough of the rules to know what was going on and be able to follow it. And just, I mean, it sounds dumb to you, but, like, basic shit, like, run rate and what they're trying to check. Like, yeah. knew enough about it to get the drama. And then it ends in this mad flourish of chaos. And I looked at Andy, and I'm like, what happened? What happened? <laughs> and he looked at me, and he goes, it was a tie. And I'm like fucking tie and i'm like no keep playing and he's like no this is beautiful it's a tie and after that i really did like i came home and started listening to test match special and then started listening to what was the parody of that called test match sofa test match sofa do they still do that it's now called gorilla crickets it's still there it's just the guy who did test match sofa dan norcross is now on test match special he went from the parody to the major Dude, commentary. isn't that how, you know, Led <laughs> Zeppelin goes from being banned in America to having their music in Cadillac commercials. Like, every insurgent eventually becomes the establishment. Yeah, no, exactly. I remember a band years ago saying, it doesn't matter how subversive your favorite singer is, eventually they'll be on the TV putting together a shoe rack or something. And it does always happen, doesn't it? Oh, I know. And like, I went and recorded an episode once of Test Match Sofa at those dudes' house. Yes. Like, I went to, I remember going to their house with all the uh, the extra stuff that went on in the house as well. Dude, but. the house was the house was something. I mean, the house was <laughs> like, I don't know what it's like to be on the air on the BBC, but it ain't that. I mean, like, I don't no. think Blofeld's doing bong rips. No. Although he probably is. If anyone would, it probably would be him. But no, you're probably right. It didn't happen. We once did, I think Dan's father had passed away and his father was in the Navy. When you're in the Navy, you get this special bottle of rum, and his father had never drunk it. And me and Dan drunk it on air together, like, and just commentated. And, like, we were both blind. I don't know what we were commentating. The game probably finished, and we were just talking. It was good times. Oh, yeah. Like, <laughs> that was fabulous. And, like, you know, I mean, I went and had lunch with Blofeld when I was in England, and he was wearing red pants, and we drank a bunch <laughs> of Chablis and got really drunk at lunch. And I was just like, well, this is perfect. But, no, like, that was the match where I really yeah. actually loved First, I love the scene of it, which sort of annoys cricket fans, I think, because the game itself is so good that everybody's like, oh, I don't know what's going on, but it's fun. And I think people who really get the drama of the game feel like, well, you dumbass, you're this close to something really, really great, and you're so into your own 
weird sort of tourist fetish that you're missing the fact that this is actually an incredible sporting event. But that was really it for me. I mean, dude, I still have a subscription to Willow TV. I feel like I'm the only person in the state of Mississippi. No, but that was the game where I really was like, okay, this is great. All right, so at that stage you like it, but coming in, you talk about the Cricket for Dummies book. The editors have forced you to do this. Have you done any research from a basic point of view? Because there have been a lot of American writers, right, really patronizing ordinary cricket pieces. And you're not just writing about cricket, you're writing about Indian cricket, which is a whole nother level again. You know, I felt like I did some, I mean, not enough. I mean, I was in uh, Bangladesh and there were all these paparazzi going crazy and kids standing on the chain link fence. I think this is the beginning of the story. And standing on the chain link fence, screaming, and there's a photographer there, and I'm like, who is that guy that they're all going nuts for? And he looks at me like, I have nine heads or something, and he's like, that's Sachin Tendulkar. And I'm like, who the fuck is Sachin Tendulkar? <laughs> like, it's literally the first time I've ever heard that name in my life. In hindsight, that was perfect. I mean, to go from not knowing who he is mm. to in his hotel room talking to him, I mean, that's how deep down the rabbit hole I went. Like, I read a lot of people who come write stories about Ole Miss football and the Grove and SEC football and all that. And I was just like, I'm not going to be that guy who just comes and gawks. Like, this mm. is clearly something other than a circus. I don't need to take myself or the journey seriously because it should be fun. But, like, the thing itself should be taken seriously. It is deserving yeah. of respect. Yeah, it's interesting. I suppose that Ole Miss thing really helps you because I think UK has the general sports writers, guys, and they come in and they're usually football guys. Yeah. And they come in for cricket and they write about cricket as if it's in the 1950s because I don't really follow it anymore. As I said, I've seen the American guys come in and the non-cricket people, they come in. I felt with you, you were just like, there's something here I don't understand and it's so huge, I'm going to have to throw myself in. And you didn't write a lot of pieces that World Cup, did you? You really threw yourself into a couple, didn't you? I wrote from that match in Bangladesh, and then I wrote the thing at the end. But that's it. Yeah. I mean, I just went around. And, like, it was really interesting. I liked that. I liked just burning through notebooks without really – like, you get in trouble when you have to turn a day into parachute journalism, right? I mean, like, those yeah. stories you're talking about, I mean, you see how they happen. And so mm -hmm. the beauty of it was that, like, I didn't really need to do that. Like, I just got – to go to cricket matches all over India over and over and over again until something clicked. And you write about the story of playing, I think it's in Delhi, you yeah. play with the taxi drivers. Yeah, his um, son, whose name is Sachin. Yeah, from a writer perspective, when I read that, I was like, oh, you prick. I hate it when it, it's too easy at times. It's <laughs> Dude, you don't understand. Like, I had all these interviews planned in Delhi for the story. And Lydia Polgreen who was the partner of a photographer named Candace, who I'd worked with in Africa. And so I knew that Lydia was the India correspondent or bureau chief or something, I don't remember, for the New York Times. And so I'd reached out to them because they lived in Delhi now and they had lived in Africa the last time I saw them, just to like, hey, you want to go get dinner? And they were like, look, we have a driver that we use that we like for him to have work. If you want to use him, he can pick you up at the airport and all that. And so he picks me up at the airport and is taking me to the hotel. And we start talking. And he starts telling about his son. And he plays cricket with his friends in the slum. And I'm like, what's your son's name? And he said Sachin. And I was like, oh, I'm fucking canceling everything else. I don't know what I was planning to do, but now I'm going to go play cricket with these kids. That's the first time I'd ever swung a cricket bat or thrown a cricket ball. Or as the kids just sat there and chanted at me, chucker, chucker, chucker. 
Like, I'm sorry. I have the elbow bend is deeply hardwired into my cultural DNA. <laughs> I just could not do it. Mm. So you do that. And so at this stage, you're probably still chasing Sachin, the big Sachin, I yes. should say, for the interview. It seems like at a certain point, you're just like, I can tell the story of India as much as anyone can tell the story of India. Because it might have been Rahul or someone else says that to you. I remember Harsha Bogle said to me early on in my career, English journalists, they get off the plane, they get in the tuk-tuk. And by the time they're at their hotel, they can explain India to you. And they're always wrong. So my whole career has almost been doing the opposite of that because I've been so nervous of it. But I don't think I've been to India at that point. I've probably been 10 times since you wrote that piece. But there was one thing, having worked in cricket and having worked with Indians, you talked about the pre-ironic society thing. Yeah. Really interesting because I remember that at the time. I emailed you at the time to say that for me was the standout moment that you picked that up. But the interesting thing is India isn't like that anymore. You perfectly captured India at that one moment as it was switching. There was a moment where I was in the team hotel in Bangalore and it was, I mean, it was all the guys who were the stars now, right? Mm. I mean, Coley, when I saw him there, it was very clear to me that he was part of an India that Sachin Tendulkar was not part of mm. yeah. and didn't even really understand. And it was like I was watching the 1961 New York Yankees and I knew that nothing was ever going to be the same in American sports once Mickey Mantle was gone. And it was interesting to sort of feel like I'm watching Joe DiMaggio be replaced by modern celebrity. Mm. And it was so strange to sort of feel like I was going from 1950s to present day and all that space in between in America felt like it was a snap in the thing. It was just really weird. Like I really had this sense watching it, like I'm watching a culture change in front of me and it's bonkers. There was some tabloid reporter. Kevin Peterson was at the hotel bar with the son of the Kingfisher guy, I think. BJ Malia, who's now on the run from the law. But anyway. Oh, is I he? Digress. That's unbelievable. <laughs> no, so they were drinking in the bar, and there were a bunch of women around, and I'm in the bar. I'm on my computer. You know, I've been away from home for a long time. I'm just pounding beers, sending emails. And hmm. this tabloid reporter comes up to me and says, will you take a picture of them for me because they'll throw me out of the bar? And I'm like, no, 100% not doing that. I don't know either <laughs> of these guys. They seem lovely. They're having a good time. I'm absolutely not going to walk over there and take a picture. And I just remember thinking, that is not the world that Sachin Tendulkar started playing cricket in. That's a very good point. I hadn't even put that together. But yeah, it was interesting. I remember reading the piece when it first came out and thinking, oh, if Wright was only there like six months or 12 months later, I think Virat would have exploded and you would have gone with him. But the interesting thing is you went with Saywag and I wondered how much of that was baseball fan type thing because Saywag is, you don't need to know anything about cricket to be like this guy. One, he struck me as he had 200 and something in that opening match in Dhaka. So that was one thing. I mean, he would just stand in there bombing. And so the first cricket match I ever saw in person, Sewag was sitting back there just crushing. And I was like, well, mm. who is this guy? And I liked that the little boys loved Sewag yeah. more than they liked Sachin. And so I thought that was really interesting because there was something about his, God, I'm going to sound like, David Frith or something when I say his vulgarity. But, like, dude, there was <laughs> something about him that really appealed to them and felt mm. like it was an expression of 
some kind of India. In hindsight, like you're right, like six or 12 months later, I think the thing that would have been clear was Sachin was the past, Segwag was the present, and Coley was the future. Yeah. Like, I think that's the thing that, like, if I would have been there six months later, or even, frankly, understood the culture better. Do you know what I mean? Like, like... You talk about Coley's girlfriend and the designer handbag. So you were kind of already there, but Coley was at this stage. There's no reason for him to jump out. Whereas Saywag smashing the ball and Sachin, Sachin. That's the obvious thing. Well, and Saywag, he was just hitting bombs. (laughs) But it was interesting. You know, when I sat with Coley a couple of years ago, you know, it was interesting the degree to which he has a weird life. Yeah. Like, I just remember thinking, I don't want any part of any of this. And in hindsight, it was interesting to see the stirrings of that because it was designer culture, celebrity culture. You know, there were teenage girls hanging out, waiting on Coley, who didn't give a shit about Sachin or Sewak. Yeah. It was also, I went to the neighborhood where Sewak grew up, and it was just like, oh, my God, he grew up in a Bruce Springsteen song. (laughs) Like, oh, okay, well, that makes sense. And then, you know, Sachin's father is a poet. It's not quite the same, is it? Yeah, I know. I know what you mean. Also, like, Sachin, obviously, like, he grew up in that world where everyone knew who he was, but because it was a more respectful time, even if Coley never ends up being as famous as him, and to be fair, he's giving it a fair whack, Coley's always going to get it worse just because the camera phones. I don't know if you've seen the famous photo that I think it won Wisdom's photo of the decade or something. It's literally Sachin is walking off in one of his last innings and everyone in the crowd has turned around and they have their mobile pointed at him. Remember seeing that and just thinking, that's right at the end of his career, Coley's going to have that his entire life. I was in uh, Sri Lanka for the T20, and you were there, and I convinced the head of PR for the West Indies team, they just won, there was some team party with Chris Gale, Yeah, and I convinced the guy, I'm like, look, I just want to see what it's like. There was going to be a phalanx of security guards to move Gale from this ballroom across the lobby, it was the Cinnamon Grand, it was the hotel where the attack was, and move him from this ballroom across the lobby to the elevator up to his room. And the place was going nuts. And mm-hmm. like if it was like the closest I think I'll ever come personally to knowing what it was like to be in the Beatles. Because <laughs> I got in there, we got surrounded by security guards. Gail was like, what's up, bro? You better keep up. Here we go. And when those doors kicked open and the security guard, I mean, like we were running over people. And it was nuts. And I just remember, I, I didn't even have a notebook out. I just was running a tape recorder on my phone. And I asked him like three questions. And then we got in the elevator. And I just remember thinking, that sucked. Like, like <laughs> it was different even in the two years that had passed between the ODI World Cup in India and this T20 Cup in uh, Sri Lanka. Let's talk about that just briefly, because I tried to organize something where you were going to face Dirk Nanus, the Australian fast bowler, and I think Cricket Australia said no. Probably saved your life, to be fair, but I would have written a great piece about you dying. You wrote the Mahela Kumar piece. Yeah, I spent a bunch of time with those guys. It felt by that stage, you'd been to Lords. I remember you and I were sitting next to each other in Lords, and I think we might have been doing a podcast from the press box, probably breaking all their rules, and you suddenly looked up and realized that Sachin was aiming the ball. And it's the first time you realized that batsmen could move their wrists and actually hit gaps. So you're still learning. Totally learning. You know, I remember I went over that trip. I went to Mike Marchese's house and he was really sick. You could tell. And at that point, I was actively trying to learn about the game as opposed to sort of the culture, which I think was good for me. It probably annoyed the editors because they were like, no, no, no. The whole point of you going is that you're the outsider. Don't get into this. Yeah. Yeah, I really got into it. And 
by that one, I was just like, I'm going to try to cover this thing like I'm actually a cricket writer. Like, I'm actually going to, like, cover the tournament. I'm going to cover the games, the people, the stories. I mean, I'm going to, whatever I think are the stories are the things I'm going to pick. But, like, the cuteness of the outsider strolling into a new world certainly felt like it had worn off to me. And I imagined if, if I felt it, readers certainly felt it. And, like, mm. there's just a limit to how incredulous you can be until you just look like a jackass. Well, I think by that point it made sense. I suppose you were always in a tricky situation because if ESPN didn't own Crick Info, you could have probably done more, but I think they're probably thinking, well, wait a minute, in those days, Crick Info, the T20 vinyl in 2012, we must have had eight people in the press box. Dude, it was unbelievable because the ICC PR were like, they were just assholes. I was like, dude, do you understand? We're the only people here who were telling the CEOs of these companies that your players and sport are desperate to woo what's going on here. Like, how about a little bit just, like, return the email? <laughs> well, how did you get Sachin then? Because he's not an easy man to get to. How much is you throwing the ESPN badge around and the American badge around? Or was it just luck? I had a, a meeting or two with his agent and was like, this is why. Like, I can't leave this country without meeting the guy. Yeah. After all of this. After finding out who he was a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> Stop mentioning that part. <laughs> Uh, I've never been more obsessed with someone I met moments ago. No, no, 100%. And I just remember thinking, like, I made a good case, obviously. But, I mean, I thought mm. as I was doing I was like, you know, what's this guy got to lose? Yeah. I remember when you tried to do the big Gale feature, I think you spent like a day and a half in the Cinnamon Ground Lobby. So you're willing to put the hours in when you have to. And Gale's a tough one anyway because West Indies Cricket will say yes, his agent will say yes, his publicist will say yes, and then Gail will just go, no, nah, I'm walk off anyway. That's the thing people don't realize is like a yes is never a yes until the yeah. – I'm never disappointed because I'm deeply suspicious of a yes. No, that makes sense. One last question about cricket. I wanted to ask you about the time you were on Twitter. You've left Twitter because you were getting in fights with everyone all the time. But when you were on Twitter, Mahela and Kumar were winning the – must have been 2014 World T20. So you're about three years into your cricket-loving moment at this point – they're batting together, and you offer to call up any U.S. cricket fan to explain to them how important that was. Was that just because you just felt like America just wasn't getting it and you just had to chat to people and convert people, or what was it? I felt like the announcers weren't doing it, and I'm watching and feeling like this is an unbelievable moment that this thing is happening for these two men. So, yeah, I said, email me your cell phone number if you don't understand what's going on, and I will call you. Most people must have thought I was kidding because only like seven or eight people did it. And I called them. I'm like, all right, here's the deal. And then another time it was during a match, I was like, email me if you want me to call you and explain the rules. <laughs> it's just a beautiful, beautiful game. I mean, I still, your incredible documentary got at a lot of the real problems, but it is interesting the degree to which it still inspires people to have enough love for it to even care to hold it accountable, which isn't true for a lot of things. I mean, a lot of sports have just become merch. The current generation of American baseball writers, I don't know if they feel about baseball like the guys who used to sit in the press box when I first started. Yeah. Who were like fucking lifers, who loved baseball more than they loved journalism, who were there because they loved baseball. I find that like cricket still inspires people to hold it to account. Cricket writers are calling ICC out on their utter corruption way more, it feels like, than most football writers call out FIFA. Or is that not true? 
there was a period where they didn't do anything with it. But I think you're right. And sometimes, like I've got into baseball a little bit because I do cricket analytics now. You know, I get I so you know I know some of the some of your friends probably who, who write in baseball and a lot of the nerdier guys. Like I chat to them sometimes. Oh yeah, yeah. What I feel is that cricket was already so pessimistic about its future from the start. It always went oh. Anything could go wrong. Whereas baseball was so cocksure and golf's another one, so cocksure. And then you look at the numbers and you're like, cricket's doing much better than you guys. And yet cricket journalists are worried about the future at every moment. And golf writers didn't even see it coming. Cricket, it seems to me like, you know, like I mean, like we we're just talking about Mike Marchese and, you know, going to his house in Hackney and talking to him. The first thing ever published about cricket was lamenting the loss yeah. of cricket's innocence. Like the past that cricket did you watch the Ken Burns country music documentary at all? Do you know what I'm talking about? No, I haven't seen that one. It's really great, but it, it, the thing about it is that country music wasn't born in rural America. It was born in urban America by people who'd had to leave little towns and farms to move to the city to work in factories. It was born as music of longing and nostalgia. Nostalgia comes from the Greek words for home and pain. And like cricket seems to me that it was a sport created post-industrial revolution by people who remembered the life they had before Manchester textile mills destroyed an entire way of being a human being on earth. Mm. And so like, I think that like the roots of cricket as this game created to preserve this longing for an already dead world. It sounds so simple and also like overly reductive, but I feel like that is so hardwired into the DNA of the sport that it influences even the thing you're talking about, which is how people look at it. And mm. like, it, it is a sport born of longing for a vanished world. And therefore, everybody who loves it lives in fear of a vanished world. Like it feels like one plus one equals two when you lay it out like that. That makes a lot of sense. And I think that because of that, we have conversations like this in cricket yeah. in a way that maybe other sports just don't. I mean, I've always sort of said it. It's a bit like watching Woody Allen. It's constantly on the couch and it doesn't even need the psychologist. It's doing it to itself in this constant monologue. And, you know, sometimes I wish it would stop and do other things. And I think I'm going to look away from you slightly. I don't want to be too nice to you, but I think you have actually helped cricket in many ways because you came in and allowed a lot of us to suddenly go, we can write about where cricket's place is and where it is. And I think that came from your early work. It's not that we didn't have great writers in cricket before you, but I think that you came through and ESPN and that stage Cricket Info was such a big force. I think you have allowed a lot of us as we've come through to actually now write more about the state of cricket from a detailed perspective. I think before we looked at it from a news perspective. Do you know what I mean? Whereas now there's a lot of bigger picture stuff. So I think we needed Mike Marchese is a perfect example and you're a perfect example of that outside of just almost ringing the bell. One, thank you. That's very, very kind. I don't, I, you know, I found that my story might have been different from a lot of stories that were being published, but I felt like it flowed pretty naturally from the conversations I was having with cricket yeah. writers in bars and restaurants. And so... I mean, in that way, like, it, those weren't my ideas as much as I just was immersed in this world and became a running joke. You know, we had fresh roti in the golden age of cricket. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like, like, you know, there was this sense of there's this meta level of commentary wired into the highest levels of cricket. Football is just like, I'm awesome, I'm awesome, I'm awesome, I'm awesome. Yeah. And both football and American football are like that. But cricket seems to be 
always sort of like floating above itself being like, am I okay? Am I okay? Do they like me? Do they like me? Am I okay? I'm okay. I like that. Like it is the rare self-aware sport. Yeah, I think that's a very good place there. Well, I'd like to thank you for coming on. And also, and I don't know if I've ever thanked you personally for this, but thank you for giving me a kick in the ass in 2012, where you said, have you thought about writing features and everything? So thank you very much for that, because it turned out okay, right? People started paying me for them. It's pretty staggering when that happens for the first time. You're sort of like, oh, shit, like this, this yeah. really? Yeah, I had to pull out all the pop culture references because people started taking me far too seriously. You can't make as many Friends and Simpsons jokes after then, can you? No, you really can't. That shit is over. Beautiful. Thanks, mate. Yeah, of course. Thanks for listening. You can't follow my guest on Twitter because he left it after getting really angry with people, but I have left a link in the show notes to his articles. But I'm still there on Twitter, despite getting angry with people. Please review this podcast on Apple or any platform you use. This helps us a lot, and it must, because everyone says that on every podcast, right? Patreon funds this series, so if you like it, please pop over there and support us. Thanks to the many who already are. Red Inker is made by me, Jared Kimber. Nick McCorriston makes your ears feel better, and the theme tune is by the Red Crickets. Red Inca listener. Don't forget to also subscribe and listen to Double Century, a podcast where I trawl through old newspaper reports and bitter books from former players to tell the story of our great game. Find Double Century in your podcast apps.